This is Inside the Truck, presented by Summer Skates. Show your game off the ice. Inside the Truck, pulling back the curtain on sports television production. Here is Steve Lansky and Paul Hemming. I'm Steve Lansky. In over 41 years of live sports television, I've produced Hockey Night in Canada, the Grey Cup on CBC, and in grade five at Meadow Lane Public School, I was a full-on badass. And I'm Paul Hemming. I've been a live sports TV director for 20 years. I've directed 16 World Juniors, six CFL Grey Cups, the Golden Goal of the 2010 Winter Olympics, and in eighth grade at Northdale Public School, I was Students' Council President. Grade five badass, huh, Steve? So why's that? I don't know why. I started fine in Toronto, kindergarten, and then we moved to Kitchener, Ontario, and I was good, and then went to Meadow Lane, and my grade five teacher was Mr. Gardner, and it just went off the rails. I liked him, but at one point, I saw a kid's pencil, and I thought it was shiny and nice, and I stole it from his desk, and then I committed the cardinal sin of lying, like, to my grave that I stole the pencil. It still Uh-oh. bothers me, Paul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that explains a lot. Um, also explains where it started for you, Steve. <laughs> How far are we into this? Two minutes and we're so deep. We're so deep into me already. Okay, we got to get off me. What's in the mailbag, buddy? What do we have this week? Uh, we got a great tweet from Patrick M. TM from Microsoftville, Washington. I'm sure that's an actual place. Patrick writes, this is awesome chaos hearing inside the truck during a game. As a production nerd, thank you. I've never been in a truck during a game, only after the broadcast was done. So Patrick was thrilled with our uh, segment from inside the truck in our last show. Right. And in our last episode, we played a chunk of you in the hockey night truck. And it was just the Joffrey Lupel scored a goal and it was just back and forth crazy. And I guess... Maybe people in the truck sound angry when that happens. If you're a lay person watching, nobody's angry. They just have these really specific jobs that they're trying to do in a defined time period. So there's an urgency, right? Absolutely. It sounds like everybody's just screaming at each other. But it is, again, it's it's controlled chaos, as I like to call it. The key is separating work from personal. Uh, so that when you, you know, you, you go out after the game, it's not like, I'll take uh, a red wine and a Caesar salad and a steak, but don't bring me my wine until after you bring me a glass of Perrier. And then I'm going to have the cheesecake for dessert. You have to back off a bit when you're in your personal life. Are you implying that's the wrong way to order in a restaurant? Because now this show has really started badly for me. <laughs> First, I, my grade five transgressions have been exposed. That is how I order. This is bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I also got a couple of emails about that, and people really seem to like that we explained the roles of producer and director kind of down to the minutia, because I think when you've got that chaos and that screaming, nobody really knows who's doing what. But it was good that we talked about it, and people seem to appreciate that. But today, it's a bit of a departure, not necessarily things that happened right during a game, right? Yeah, these are moments that happened between shows or between red lights, whatever you want to call it. And it's, it's, it's moments that could come from your involvement during an interview with an athlete or a coach or a travel story or just in the chance meeting in the coffee shop with an athlete or a coach. And so these are where our stories are coming from today. This is part and parcel of Inside the Truck as well, too. I think for me, those are the most fun moments because when the game starts, you kind of know what you're going to get. I mean, there's there's a few surprises, but you never know what's going to happen Like you said, in the hotel lobby, when you're doing an interview, all my stories today are about interviews because I did a lot of them over the years. And I felt really fortunate to have met the people that I've met, met the vice president of the United States. I've met Jack Nicholas. I've met Wayne Gretzky, of course, tons of hockey players. And you must have the same list of people that you've met over the years that honest to God, I've probably forgotten half of them. It's true. And and from uh, t- it's like sit down interviews, the best sit down interviews always were with head coaches from football teams or coordinators because football is a microcosm for like everything in life, really. You know what I mean? And so there were a lot of takeaways for me listening to head coaches, great head coaches in, uh, from the past. And I would take those moments that when he's talking about his football team and I would actually transpose those to moments in life, learning moments in life. Um, I had Wally Buono one day in Vancouver 
the longtime CFL legend, tell me that there are microscopic holes in condoms. I mean, who knew, right? That was something I learned from Wally. And then another night with Tom Higgins, the old Edmonton Eskimos head coach, I sat down in a, in a uh, suite at the Delta in Regina, and he basically broke down the difference between a 3-4 and a 4-3 defense. It took him 45 minutes, and it was just basically me and him one-on-one. I felt like it was in the coach's room. So there's been some neat moments like that that I, I've been a part of. The cool thing for me is that sometimes it's just you and the camera operator and whoever you're interviewing. So it is, it's like an intimate moment, isn't it? And if you soak in that information, so if you're a real sports fan, you're a real football fan or you're a real condom fan, that's Mm -hmm. the information that you want. And you feel like you're the only one getting it at that moment, right? You're not in a scrum. You're just in a quiet place where you can talk to that person. Right. I mean, it feels like you're having a conversation with your dad. It's like one-on-one as intimate as possible. And these guys are awesome. Like Mark Tressman was another one I really enjoyed listening to. Uh, Coach Tressman was just a genius uh, at football and away from football as well, too. But also a super caring guy. Like after the uh, Alouettes won the infamous 13th man Grey Cup game against Saskatchewan, we had our cameras go in the Montreal locker room for what seemed to be like an hour-long post-game show inside the locker room where they were handing out game balls, where players were stepping up, making their speeches and stuff. It was it was as intimate a moment as, well, Chris Cuthbert said on an earlier podcast, it was the best Grey Cup post-game show he's ever been a part of. But I'll tell you what you need to know about Mark Tressman was in the hallway after it was all said and done, I ran into use the restroom and I bumped into Mark Tressman in the hallway in, at McMahon Stadium in Calgary. He was with his wife and his family. And he stepped away from his wife and his family and pulled me aside and said, hey, were, was that stuff in the locker room? Was it OK? Were we good enough for you guys? And I was like, are you kidding me? You just won the Grey Cup. You're standing here with your wife and your and your family. And you just want to make sure that you didn't let TV down. Like those are moments I'll take with me to my grave because I'm like, wow, those are lifetime moments right there. And you know what makes me sad about that? I love that story. And I really like Mark Tressman. Nobody at home will ever know that. They'll never have know that moment about him unless you tell them. And even then, I wasn't there to see it. It doesn't surprise me, but it tells you so much about that person that you will never find out any other way because when the red light's on and the camera's on, they, they can often be different people, right? This leads me into my first story, Steve, which involves a couple of delayed flights and a coach's office in Detroit. I'll tease it like that. So we're going back to, we're going to go in the Wayback Machine here to uh, December of 2010, okay? So I'm working for TSN, directing NHL games. We have a game in Washington, and that we play back, we have shows back-to-back that night in D.C. and then the next night in Detroit. So, you know, get to the airport early in the morning on game day at Reagan in, in D.C., and of course, these are the moments where you're like living and dying, right? Because you can't, you can't have anything go wrong because you've got to fly from Washington to Detroit. You got to land. You got to take the 40 minute ride to downtown Detroit, check into your hotel, basically just have enough time to dump your bag out, have a shower, get dressed, and then get right to Joe Louis Arena. So there's no time for delays. Turns out that my flight gets delayed like multiple times. I'm traveling with Pierre McGuire. And now not so much, not so much stressful for Pierre. Pierre's on the phone. He's doing radio. He's grabbing Starbucks. He's got nothing going on. He knows that he doesn't have to be at the rink till five. So he'll get there when he gets there. But for me, I got to be there at like noon, one o'clock. So my window is closing quickly. So anyway, we get to the point now where, I don't know, we're delayed by two, three, four hours. You know, I'm in communication with, you know, my, the production crew that I'm going to work with that night in Detroit saying, you know, Hey, things are getting a little bit tight here. I'm going to get there. I just don't know when. So anyway, we get to the point where I turn around and say to Pierre, I'm not going to have, I'm going to have to go right to the truck. I'm wearing like jeans, a sweatshirt, a ball cap, like just travel day clothes. Right. I go, I'm going to have to go to the truck and I'm going to have to look like this. And he goes, hold on. He goes, hold on chop. Let me, let me, let me try something for you. Now, is that not a rookie mistake thinking you're going to get to the, shouldn't you be dressed to go straight to the truck? And then if you got to go to, I assume you're staying at the rent center in Detroit. If you got to go to the hotel, that would be a bonus. Is that not a rookie move there? (laughs) Well, that, no, that would be the rookie move would be to get up and do all that. The veteran (laughs) move would be to get up five minutes before you're supposed to be in the lobby, throw a hat on, barely brush your teeth and get in the taxi and go because you're trying to milk as much sleep out of that night as you can get. 
So yeah, I think I, we see that up. I think we got opposite on that one. Yeah. My move was the vet move. <laughs> Getting up two hours early to shower and all that and get dressed for work. That's the rookie. Move. <laughs> so anyway, so Pierre, Pierre gets Pierre says, I think I got a solution. And he walks away and he's on his phone. And I'm like, oh, OK, I don't know. I'm not sure where this is going, but OK. So Pierre comes back to me, said, you're looked after, Chop. He said, when you land in Detroit, go right to the rink. I'm like, well, but how, where am I? What, what, how am I going to get ready for work? And he said, uh, I've arranged everything. You got Mike Babcock's office. It's all yours. When you get there, just take your time. You're right there. Boom. You're right at Joe. Walk out into the truck. You're good. The head coach of the Red Wings. You're going to go into his office at the Joe, right? Yep, exactly. Okay. Right. Okay. And so I'm like, wow, okay. So like half of me is thinking this, this story's like, this is, this something stinks here. Like there's no <laughs> way Mike Babcock is going to say, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Just, I'm not there right now. I'm at home for lunch, but you can use my office. Right. So, uh, but the other half of me is thinking, well, he is, he is tight with Pierre and how could Pierre say this if it wasn't true? Right. So sure enough, we land in Detroit. We Pierre and I get in separate cars. He takes one to the hotel and I take one to the Joe. So we pull up at Joe Lewis Arena, grab my bags and stuff, hop out, walk in uh, to security. I show my NHL badge that gets me in the rink. So now I'm walking down that long hallway to the Red Wings, to the Red Wings dressing room. Right. Everything's and red end, and white. Though. Oh, oh, yeah. All, all red and white. Right. Right. Yeah. And there's pictures of Gordie Howe. Right. And, you know, right. and Alex right. Del Vecchio and, right. all, you know, Stanley Cup president and everything. Anyway, yeah. so we're walking down there and there's this one lonely security guard at the end of the hall and he's guarding the tunnel that goes to the wings dressing room <laughs> so i get to this and i'm thinking this is where my story ends right here right you know mm -hmm. but he's gonna go uh, yeah no nice try guy sorry not today right so i walk up to the guy and i say yeah hi i'm you know my name's paul hemming i'm with tsn apparently i've been given permission to use coach babcock's room to get ready and he goes oh yeah paul we've been expecting you right this way <laughs> so are you, are you serious yeah he's like yeah no problem right this way he goes uh, coach babcock office is on the right first door on your right i'm like yeah no i i'm yeah i've been in there cool awesome thank you thank you you walk in the door and on the right is mike's office and then there's a little mini hallway and it goes and it opens up into the coaches room where all the stalls are for all the other coaches right right big bathroom on the left you know big step-in shower you know just like you'd see in a locker room right yeah I'm like, wow, okay. So I put my bags down and for a brief moment, I just stand there and I look around. Can you believe the people, the coaches, the Hall of Famers, the conversations that have gone on in this room? And I'm just standing in there alone in dead silence, right? And then quickly I looked at my watch and like, oh man, I'm already like 20 minutes late for work. Okay, I gotta, I gotta hop in the shower. So I gear down in the middle of the coach's room oh. and there's a stack of towels and stuff. So I go in there and I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting all cleaned up. Don't need to shave. Uh, I don't really grow beards that well. So I passed on the shave, but I hop in, I, I'm starting to lather up and everything. I'm looking around. I'm like, I don't, I don't have any, I normally use hotel soap and shampoo. But anyway, thank God that the shower was stocked with American crew product. Well, there like wasn't Bab anything. There wasn't anything. But when Babs knew you were coming, he oh, said, we yeah. need toiletries well, in there for Hemming, right? And you know how Babs always has the great hair, right? His hair's <laughs> always the best, right? If there was a hair hall of fame for coaches, he'd be in it. He First ballot. Yeah. Anyway, I always wondered what it was they used. It was American Crew because he had American Crew shampoo, American Crew conditioner, American Crew pomade gel. That's what he used. And so... That was awesome. So I showered up, you know, I, he figured I, I, he invited me to use the place. So I did, I yeah. used his shampoo. I used his conditioner. Um, and then I, I pomade up my hair that night. I looked exactly like Mike Babcock when I left his, <laughs> when I left his office, it was perfect. Grab my bags, walk into the truck. Hey guys, here I am. It was perfect. I think I ended up only being like 30 minutes late for work. I'm sitting, listening to that story. And I'm thinking Babcock's going to walk in and say, what the hell are you doing in here? But you skated on that one. You got the full skate on that I, one. hundred percent. I didn't have an iPhone back then. I had a Blackberry and they didn't really take great pictures. And I mean, I should have taken, I should have archived that entire moment, but I didn't. I only just have it in my head now to remember it. I can only assume that the next time you did a game in Detroit, the invitation was open and you once again showered in Mike's office. It was just a little uncomfortable because he was in there at the time. Is that right? Yeah, no. The next time I was like, thanks, coach. That'll never happen again. I owe you one. Well, one of my memories involves an NHL coach, uh, not Mike Babcock, and it doesn't have the same charming ending that yours does, unfortunately. So I'm doing... Sportsnet's hockey studio. It's December 1999. And Roger Nielsen, 
is coaching the Philadelphia Flyers. He's their head coach. And he's had some health challenges, but nothing's been revealed. But this is a Friday. And on the Friday in Philadelphia, Roger has a very small press conference that announces he has cancer. He's fighting cancer. And the Flyers under Bobby Clark always did strange things. And what he did was he did that press conference. And then they immediately got on a plane and flew to Toronto because they had a game in Toronto that Saturday night. Now, we had a Sportsnet game that Friday night. So as soon as Roger makes this announcement and the Flyers are coming to Toronto, Darren Dreger and I and Mike Keenan, who were doing Sportsnet's hockey studio at that time, said, we need to try and get an interview with Raj this afternoon after they land. So we get on the phone to the Flyers. Darren gets on the phone to the Flyers and Roger will do a sit down interview with us once he gets to the hotel in Toronto. So the Flyers are going to land in Toronto. They're going to go to, I think it was the Harbor Castle in Toronto. Then Roger's going to do a short press conference. Then we're going to get a sit down interview with Roger Nielsen. Now, the beauty of this is Hockey Night will do the same thing, but theirs won't air till Saturday night and ours will air tonight, which is Friday because we had an NHL game because Sportsnet had the NHL rights. So we know we're not going to have very long with Roger. We're going to get five, maybe 10 minutes in a quiet room at the hotel. And so Dreger and Keenan and I start coming up with questions that we want to ask Roger. And we get another smart idea in that I request two cameras. So it's going to be a two camera interview. Normally what you do is you shoot the guest during an interview like that. And then your host does re-asks just like the movie Broadcast News, if you ever saw it with William Hurt. But we don't want to do that because we don't have time to do reasks, and it's never as good. So we want two cameras, one on Dreger, one on Roger. This takes about an hour of wrangling, arguing, haranguing the bosses, but we get the two cameras. So now we got to come up with a list of questions. And the problem is you don't want softball questions. You want serious questions, mm -hmm. right? This, this man's just announced he has cancer and yep. we don't know to what degree, Paul, but that's not an announcement you want to make and it's not an announcement you want to hear. Mm -hmm. So me and Dreger and Keenan, who knew Roger from years and years ago, they both coached the Peterborough Peets in the OHA, it would have been then, OHL now. And we start coming up with questions. Talk about your diagnosis. Uh, when did you first have an inkling? How will it affect your coaching? And I say, I think you have to ask him how he's feeling. Mm -hmm. And Darren said, what do you mean how you're feeling? Like, is he sick? Or I said, no, no, no. What about if you say to him, are you scared? Mm -hmm. And Darren said, oh, I can't ask him that. And I said, Dregs, I think you have to. Mm-hmm. He said, boy, and he's back and forth. He's waffling. He's Keenan sits on the fence. Keenan won't answer because he's a coach and he won't, you know, mm -hmm. subscribe to the theory that we should ask that question. And I said, Dregs, I really, really, really think you have to say to him, are you scared? You can make it your last question if you want, but I think you have to ask him. And again, mm -hmm. it doesn't work in the re-ask scenario. You really need those two cameras. So we get down there. Roger does his press conference. Hockey night's there, but we're going to scoop him because we're going to run this thing tonight. And the other beauty of having two cameras is when we go back and we go to edit it, we almost just have to straight roll two tapes and they'll yep. cut together immediately. And we will not be putting any B-roll. B-roll. Supplemental video used to enhance your primary footage. We will not be putting any B-roll over this interview. It'll just be Dreger Nielsen, Dreger Nielsen, Dreger Nielsen. So we get down there and we set up and we're ready and Roger comes in and he sits in the chair and Darren does the back and forth interview. And then right at the end, Darren looks at him and says, are you scared? And I will never, ever forget his answer. He just looked at Darren and he said, not a bit. Wow. And in my heart, I'm thinking that is great television. But at the very same time, I'm thinking, I hate that we have to ask this man these questions. Mm -hmm. 
And we went back and we ran the interview and I probably got some arthritis from the number of back slaps we got that night saying, great job, everybody, great job. But to me, it just crystallized that moment of how we see these guys away from the rink, mm-hmm. but we have these unique opportunities, not the same as showering in Mike Babcock's office, but these unique opportunities where we can see these people away from the rink and ask a question that a guy at home might want to ask. And I think that might have been a question somebody at home would want to ask. And unfortunately, Roger didn't finish the season as the Flyers head coach. Bobby Clark replaced him really cruelly and and ham-handed at the end of the season. And Roger passed away in June 2003 from cancer. I just remember that moment and learning so much. We talked earlier about Roger Nielsen with that one answer mm-hmm. than I had in, in all the previous times I'd met him or worked with him or seen him around the rink. Well, it separates sports from hum- humanity, right? It's human. It's a personal moment, which uh, goes outside the boundaries of sports. Those are the moments that you remember forever. I, I bet you just close your eyes and you can remember that like it was yesterday. Oh, absolutely. I could take you right to the room where he was sitting, where Darren was sitting. And I think I think your point is right. And I think that was our our job that day as producers and and broadcasters was to give you something that wasn't the standard hockey fair, because this wasn't you're right. This wasn't a hockey story. This Mm -hmm. was a people story. And quite frankly, if we want to get into that philosophy, I think every story is a people story if you do it mm-hmm. right. I don't mm-hmm. think there's such thing as a sports story. Every sports story is a people story, and I want to know about the person. And I thought that answer revealed so much about Roger. It's, it resonates so strongly with me even today. Paul, please tell me your next story isn't as heavy as that one. Well, uh, it turns out to not be, but I'm not going to lie to you. There were moments where I thought it was going to and super heavy. Um, the, yeah. So we're going to go back to uh, December 7th of 2018. We're on the road with the Carolina Hurricanes. It's a Saturday night. We've just played in Anaheim. We're chartering our charter. We're going home. We're not spending the night in Anaheim. We're flying right back to Raleigh. Is which, that like three hours, four hours? Oh, and it's more than that. Yeah. It's, it's ugly. So we would, we left, we left Long Beach at like, I don't know, 1130 maybe. And we weren't scheduled to land in Raleigh until like 6.30 in the morning. I was going to so say, it's it, dawn. It's going to be oh, dawn. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm landing and it, thank goodness it's Sunday morning. Otherwise, I would have been driving right into the middle of rush hour traffic, which is what you want after you just get off a, a red eye from, from Anaheim. Anyway, so we board the plane and we take off, like I say, around 11.30. We won. So, you know, it was this, everybody was in good spirits and everything. Right. It was kind of a little bit of a party. But then the party quickly dies out because everybody's like, okay, we got to get some sleep, right? Yeah have a obligatory couple of glasses of wine and uh, whatever it was uh, for food that night. And then I shut it, listen to some music and I fall asleep and I, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a deep, deep sleep. Then I, I don't know how much time has elapsed. I wake up suddenly from my sleep and I, I can smell something. I can smell something in the cabin. Is it a nice steak cooking? I, I was hoping that it would be like bacon and eggs, right? Yeah. Like yeah. For our landing. Nice yeah. charter breakfast. Yeah. No, unfortunately, if it was breakfast, it was burning Mm -hmm. because the smell was of burning plastic. Like it just was a really rank burning smell, not like comfy cabin campfire. It was an ugly, gross burning smell. So I wake up and I can smell it and I I turn around. I look, I do like a 360 around me just to see if anybody else is noticing this and everybody else is dead fast asleep. Everybody else on the plane, the entire plane is asleep. Coaches, players, support staff, everybody. I think I so, saw this on the Twilight Zone, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. That's what they based this episode off of. Got it. Anyway, yeah. Then I've flown enough. And for those of you who have flown a lot, you can tell when you're in a rapid descent, right? Because <laughs> the plane is doing a speed wobble, right? It's like, right? Like when you're coming down in a hurry, right? I mean, yeah. anybody who's flown has probably been had part of a rapid descent. Anyway, now after I've acknowledged the smell, I can tell we're in a we're in a really quick descent. So I flip up the the, the shade because I'm on the window. I flip up the shade and I look out. We are not even close. Like the sun should be up if we're landing in Raleigh, right? Right. It's six thirty right. in the morning. Right. No, it's still pitch black. Right. And I flip up the shade and I flip the shade down and I'm like, this is not good. This is not good. 
I, I, we're, we're landing quickly and in, seems to be in the middle of nowhere. Well, nowhere ended up being Tulsa, Oklahoma, Steve. As it turned out, we were in a rapid descent. We were in an emergency. We were in a state of emergency, actually. A, a minutes late, a couple of, like le- less than two minutes later, the flight crew was running from the back alley to the front galley. And they were, they were, and R- Rod Brindamore was woken up and Mike Sundheim, our uh, VP of communications, he was awake. And now they were having this meeting in the cockpit area, like just outside the cockpit door. And now everybody on the plane starting to wake up and it's like, there's, and they're all going, Hey, I smell something burning. There was smoke. There was smoke in the cockpit. We were emergency landing in Tulsa, Oklahoma. What do you suppose they were meeting about? Like who was going to make the final speech to the team that says it's been great knowing you, or this sounds like the Edmund Fitzgerald here, buddy. You know what it was? It was the two flight attendants were prepping the coaches to go through and run through the, the emergency landing procedure with everybody, right? Watches right. off, belts off, unbuckle your belt, you know, bend over, basically grab your ankles, right? Like, I mean, right. we were going, we were, we were doing an emer- a full on 10 out of 10, five-star emergency landing. And no voice over the PA saying, hey, everybody, uh, this is your captain speaking, Captain Dave, we're having a few problems, none of that stuff? Yeah, Captain Dave came on. Okay. And basically it was this in a super calm pilot voice, right? Like, right. Like they, like right. they learn in pilot school. Right. It's like, yeah. Um, we are going to make a quick little stop here and uh, we'll be landing in Tulsa shortly. And we'll get back to you with more information when it's available. <laughs> it was like, I'm like, are you kidding me? I turned on my phone to see if I could get a, a signal so I could phone my family and tell them that I love them. Right. And that if I never see them again, don't, you know, please remember me, right? We speed wobble all the way down and we hit that land, that we hit, we hit that runway in Tulsa harder than ever. Like the overhead bins pop, stuff starts falling off the plane. You know, it was just drink carts were shaking. It was just, it was a really scary landing. We come to the quickest stop we've ever stopped. And I look out, I flip open the shade, I look outside and there's four Tulsa, Oklahoma fire department trucks strategically parked at all four corners of the plane. This is an episode of May Day is what this is. Yeah, yeah. So we, now we've landed. But so now they, they pop the door, the air stairs come flying up, and we get an army of Tulsa firefighters in the plane. Oh, they come in. They don't get you in the plane. Come in. No, and no, and they're in full on firefighter regalia, right? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, they got the, the, the masks on. It's like they're going in to fight an inferno, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they start they start opening, pop all the overhead bins. They're ripping down, you know, where the the overhead where the button is for the overhead light and stuff. Yeah. They're pulling yeah. all that down. They're yeah. looking at wiring. Anyway, so long story short was that we had the circ there's a circuit board underneath the plane that controls all the flight data, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this thing shorted and it yeah. burned out. Yeah. So that smell was the electrical burning smell of this panel, right? Yeah. So basically. If we don't get that fixed, God only knows what happens, right? So anyway, so it takes them a while to figure this out, right? So they're yeah. ripping the plane apart. Yeah. And then finally they get underneath, obviously firefighters were underneath as well too, and they found the source of, of the burning and that's what it was. And so God bless the Tulsa, Oklahoma fire department who, right. you know, r- ran into that plane, not having a clue what they were about, you know, what they were getting themselves into. And also thank you really to the Carolina hurricanes for keeping us in the dark. Cause there's no way I would have ever wanted to know that the circuit board that's re- responsible for keeping the plane in the air had burned, had fried out. Right. So thanks for that as well too. Okay. And the, but the best part is when you fly a charter, you're not like a, a regular airliner. You can't just pull into Memphis and go, Oh, we'll, we'll pull up to the Delta ca- uh, you know, space and they'll fix our plane. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can't, so you travel your own flight repairman, basically. He's the mm-hmm. maintenance guy. Mm-hmm. And so we just happened to have an extra one of those circuit boards. I guess they travel with one on board. So he actually replaced it. And two hours later, we were back up in the air and we flew home safely to Raleigh. But that was that was a scary night. I mean, I the scare, the two scariest moments were I woke up and I was the only one awake looking around the entire plane of the Carolina Hurricanes, looking in the eyes of Sebastian Ajo, Jacob Slavin, you know, Rod Brindamore going, this might be the last moment that these people ever see these people alive. Anyway, it was uh, it was a scary night, one I will not forget. And what was the general reaction from the players when it became known that there may be some distress? Was everybody pretty calm? Were, were one or two guys up running around? What was the deal? No, everybody was remar- remarkably calm. I don't know if that's just because they you know, had an excellent case of composure or because they were scared crapless, right? You know, it was a crap your pants moment, but everybody stayed, you know, remarkably calm. So, wow. I did not know that story. I'm glad it turned out well for you though. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm here to tell you about it and all our listeners. So it was a good ending. But uh, there were, I'm not going to lie to you, Steve, there was probably about 10 to 15 minutes in there where I thought, I've been on some emergency landings before. This, this could have a bad ending, but it didn't. Now, I don't know if you realized you got kind of worked up in the middle of there and you referred I to did? Tulsa as Memphis. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you don't want to tell that story again, do you? (laughs) No, I'm not doing that. I think I just got my country songs mixed up. Uh, So instead of Tulsa, I was walking in Memphis. I think I'm going to, that's what I'm going to say about that. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. I don't know how many flights I've taken over the years. I don't ever remember an emergency landing or even an aborted takeoff. So now that I've said that out loud, I will knock wood, which is the top of my Mm -hmm. head, and pray that I never have one of those. So my... My funniest story that I remember, we're going back to October 23rd, 1984. So I've started with Hockey Night. Mm-hmm. And Glenn Sather's the coach and general manager of the Edmonton Oilers. The Grand Poobah, I think, was actually on his business card. Everybody at Hockey Nights wants an interview with Slats, a sit-down interview, a feature interview. He's not going to do one with these clowns. But I start bugging him, will you do a sit-down with me? Can we do a sit-down? I've known Glenn for not a decade, but close. Finally, he says, all right, Lansky, I'll do a sit down interview with you. Mm-hmm. I'm like, great. Where do you, do you want to go in your office at the rink? Or he goes, no, no. He says, I'm going pheasant hunting next week, <laughs> north of Edmonton. And you can come, you can shoot the pheasant hunting. And then afterwards we'll do the interview. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I'm like, well, what are you going to say? I'm not going to say no. Right. Right. What I know about pheasant hunting, you could slide into a thimble and have plenty of room left. (laughs) So I say fine. So I can't remember. I guess he picked me up at the hotel and then he picked up another buddy and we started to drive northeast of Edmonton and got a camera operator as well. A guy named Jeff Stickle from ITV, nickname Sticks, because that's a slang term for a tripod, right? Oh, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. It was a double, double entendre for the nickname mm-hmm. of, for Sticks' nickname. So me and Jeff Stickle go up to this uh, somewhere northeast of Edmonton. And there's seven total people, two of us and five of Glenn's group. Okay. And I'm not dressed. I've got hiking boots on and blue jeans. And they all well, have. Wouldn't that be typical pheasant hunting gear, though, or no? Uh, it sounds like you know about as much about pheasant hunting as I did. Okay, because no. that's what I would have wore. Yeah, no, they're rubberized from like their feet right up to their armpits. Wow. So here's what I don't realize. And it's not very warm, Paul. It's probably seven, eight mm-hmm. degrees max. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We take two steps out to where we're going to hunt the pheasants. Yeah. And the water is four inches deep. Oh, boy. It's not a marsh where you're going to sink, but it's right. like a bog. Right. And I take five steps and that's it. I'm done. Right. I'm soaked. Right. Top mm-hmm. to bottom, soaked. Yeah. Glenn knew this was going to happen and he's already laughing at me. Mm-hmm. So we're getting shots of Glenn pheasant hunting with these guys. Now, this was a farm. So they'd kind of stuck. It could have even been against the law. I have no idea. They stock the farm with pheasants. They go out, shoot what they can. They've paid to use the farm. Right. We go out and we're getting shots of Glenn pheasant hunting and you get some close-ups, you get some wide shots, a variety of shots that you can use to cover the interview later. So we're about 15 or 20 minutes into this sloshing around the marsh. And it's, I can still remember it at this moment. It was living hell is a strong term, but it was (laughs) close. It was close, man. Uh It was close, but we're getting some good shots. And then at one point we're about 25 or 30 feet away from Glenn. And we're getting a nice shot of him kind of moving through the reeds, kind of coming Mm -hmm. towards us. And all of a sudden, there's just this little noise behind me. And Glenn turns and he points the gun, what looks like the shotgun, right at me. (laughs) And the next thing I hear is bang. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. And I'm like, what the hell? And he starts to giggle. And what I don't realize is there was a pheasant that took off right behind us. Oh, yeah. Glenn thought it would be funny just to shoot it when it was about, I don't know, an inch and a half above our heads. I'm sure. Oh, yeah. 
That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. So I think <laughs> I think this feature is actually on YouTube somewhere. And if you oh. watch it, we use the shot in the feature. Oh, I'm, so I'm he, looking it up. Yeah. So he shoots and then he's like, because <laughs> yeah. that's what Glenn yeah. does. Glenn giggles, yeah. right? Yeah. And he was so close that when I watched the footage back from Jeff's camera, there was microphonics on the screen, which means there was a noise so loud, so close to the camera that it affected the camera's ability to properly record video for that split second. That's My how close it was. Yeah. Goodness. Yes. Oh. So now I'm wet from the waist down for another reason. <laughs> yeah. The warm wet. And that's right. The warm yeah. wet. And he thinks this is funny. Oh and my. I remember saying, that's not funny. And he's like, oh yeah, that was pretty funny. That was pretty oh funny. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Thank God. He, thank God he was a terrible aim. Well, no, he got the pheasant. Thank God he oh. was a good aim. Oh, so he got the bird, but he didn't get you. So of yeah, course. I guess. You, yeah, yeah, of course he's going to get the bird because he's Glenn. He'd never miss. But he just thought it was like, what about, here's a good idea, Slats. How about not shooting the gun over our heads? Right. What about that? Right, right. So I can still, like my palms sweated instantly and we finished and <laughs> we went back and we did the interview in the there's this little cabin and we had some hot chocolate and it was nice and warm and unfortunately and this is kind of the the sad part of the story we get into the, so we've been out there all day it's like seven, 6 or 7 degrees right we go into the cabin and jeff doesn't let the camera warm up long enough uh-huh so his lens starts to fog right. during this interview you're only getting yeah. one sit down with glenn sather after pheasant hunting yeah and he doesn't tell me he keeps I, he tells me later he keeps wiping off his viewfinder oh to boy. get the but the fog's not on the viewfinder it's on the lens right you can't do anything about that no you can't so when you watch the feature we had to minimize how much we put glenn on camera which made me really sad because it was a really hard work day to yeah. get all this and, and it was still a great feature but a it, I put it down in my diary or my journal as the day I almost died at the hands of Glenn Sather, because really that's my takeaway from that one. Yeah. Now that's what I call shooting a feature, Steve. <laughs> you were waiting seven minutes for that. That was, gold, I was, buddy. I was just sitting on it. That was gold. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Funny man from Edmonton. We head East to the Keystone state. You're up. This story comes to us from Pittsburgh, PA. Right. This is uh, back when I'm working on the NHL on TSN. And uh, as, my, as the director, it was my job to travel the backdrop. The backdrops is sort of like the drape that we put behind the players when we interview them. And they've got the TSN NHL logo on it and our sponsor logos and stuff. So as the director, it was my job to carry these and make sure that they get put up in the hallway near the, near the dressing room where we're going to do interviews. And it's a set that you put in the studio when you're on the road and you carry it in a separate series of suitcases or one suitcase, right? Yeah, that's one version. Um, we we uh, we simplified it and just went down to like this big 10 by 12 spandex backdrop right. that with grommets that you could just grommet up anywhere, right? Right. Um, but the but the thing about it is that they didn't travel. Those, those, the kind that you described, Steve, travel great. They're basically an accordion. They pop up and they look great. Yeah. But this one that we traveled... When you would pull, when I would pull it out of my bag, it looked like I slept in it. Now we're doing TV in HD, right? So you can't have that because HD makes makes great look great, but makes awful look whatever the word is for worse than awful. So I I, I came up with a plan. I had a plan for this. I was going to say creases in the backdrop or creases on your face. They all show up in HD. And I, why am I not surprised that you had a plan? What did you did you get out the old ironing board and just give it a whirl, or what'd you do? I traveled my own steamer and oh, of course you did. Yeah. Yeah. Do not leave home without it. 1999 mm -hmm. at bed, bath and beyond uh, life-saving device that I would pull out of my, my knapsack and uh, fill it up. I'd run into a dressing room on the floor level and I fill it up with water, plug it into the wall, let it start steaming. And I would steam every single crease and wrinkle out of that backdrop. So it looked brand spanking new. So that night I'm doing it in the hallway, the visitor hallway in Pittsburgh. So what happens is when the players arrive in Pittsburgh, the home team, they come in uh, at the parkade, they enter the building and they walk right down the visitor hallway into their hallway, into their room. Which rink are we in? The old this is uh, the, Mellon, no, the civic the, arena or the new one? PPG this is, paints or whatever it's called. Yeah, this is PPG paints. Yeah. Okay. 
so anyway, so and, and and the timing of this that I did this was like on our meal break. So it was around the same time that the players were arriving, right? Right. So sure enough, I'm there steaming. And this this process takes me like 15, 20 minutes to do it properly. <laughs> and so I'm steaming away. And uh Chris Letang walks by me and Marc Andre Fleury walks by me and I'm like, hey, you know, good luck tonight, guys, or whatever, right? So I'm I'm, I'm like about three quarters of the way through and, and I, I'm not paying attention because you know I'm I'm looking at the backdrop and steaming it. And I know that there's somebody right behind me, like, like off to off my right shoulder. And so I just, I just stop for a second. I look away to see who it is. And it's 87. It's Sid. He says, he goes to me, he goes, wow. He goes, that's impressive. I said, oh, really? He goes, oh, he goes, unbelievable. He goes, you do this for every game. And I go, yeah, every game. And he goes, well, why? Like why? And I said, well, I said, because the wrinkles, you can see them in HD and I don't go for that. It's got to look brand new. And Sid looked at me and he goes, you know what that is? That's attention to detail. And he said, that's what wins Stanley Cups. And I said to him, and that's also what makes great TV shows too. Nice. So you gave the kid an education right there. Now, was this before or after the goal in 2010 at the Olympic Winter Games that he scored, the golden goal? This was after. After the golden goal. Did you say, you know, now we have this kinship with the golden goal because I know you directed that. And now... You guys have bonded over a discussion of steamers. That's huge, yeah, man. It's huge. It's huge. I mean, Sid and I go way back, though. I directed, when he played for the Dartmouth Subways, I directed his, uh, he did played in the Air Canada Cup, I believe it was, or Max Midget or whatever it was, the Canadian Championship. So I, I met Sid for the first time when he was like 14 years old. So we go way back. Did you steam anything on that show? <laughs> I don't know. Probably only my performance. That was the only thing that got steamed that day. I don't think I've ever steamed anything on a show, but prior to the X Games in Rhode Island, we got a shipment of white shirts. And the night before the show, Dean Willers, who is a camera operator at TSN, uh-huh. me, Sandra Neal, and Persephone Contos were tie-dyeing the white shirts in the garbage cans in the hotel room because we <laughs> didn't want to just have white shirts on the air. But that's not... That's not nearly as sexy as steaming, that's for sure. So speaking of steamed, it's the early 2000s, and we're doing Sportsnet Hockey, Hockey Hall of Fame induction ceremony. You were probably directing it. Mm -hmm. But we went down to the hall to interview some players, some hockey legends. And we're going to interview Ted Lindsay. And Christine Simpson's going to do the interview. And we set up in an upper-level of the, what do they call it at the Hall of Fame where all the trophies are? Is that the Great Hall? The Belgrade Hall, yeah. Belgrade Hall, yeah. The Great Hall, yeah. Yeah, so we're set up above the Great Hall, kind of looking down, and Chris is preparing for the interview, and I said, I'll go and get Ted Lindsay for you. Terrible Ted, Mm -hmm. kind of tried to get the NHLPA started, and that didn't do any favors in his career. And Mm -hmm. the Ted Lindsay Award is now named for him, which is the MVP that the players vote on in the NHL. So Ted Lindsay's a legend, for God's sakes. Mm -hmm. So I say, well, I'll go get Ted Lindsay. So he's at the Royal York Hotel, which, what do you figure, 10-minute walk away from the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto? Yeah, not even. Yep. Right. So I walk over. Ted's going to meet me in the lobby, and he's there with his wife. I say, Ted, I'm going to, you know, Christine Simpson got in touch with you. I'm here to, my name is Steve Lansky. I'm here to walk you over to the... Hockey Hall of Fame. Great. So they're, you know, not 22 and 23 years old. So we're not walking very fast. Yeah. And I'm like a half an hour walk. Well, it was probably 20 (laughs) minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So I say, how was your, you know, trip to Toronto? Enjoying the hotel. And then I'm kind of out of things to say, but because I'm a sports fan, like right down to my core, I decide I'm going to ask him some sports questions. Mm-hmm. So I say, who's the toughest player you ever played against? And we're walking along. It's a, we're underground in one of those underground tunnels. Mm-hmm. I say, who's the toughest player you ever played against? And he keeps walking. Doesn't even look at me. No. So we take, you know, five steps, 10 steps. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe his hearing's going a little. Uh, I'll, uh, so I I'll say, with it again. yeah. So I say, Who's the toughest player you ever played against? And he stops and he looks at me and he doesn't grab me, but he looks like he's going to grab me. Oh, and he boy. says, yeah. And that his wife goes, "Uh oh, like under her yeah, breath. Uh-oh. 
And he goes, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, do you mind? And I'm like, <laughs> no, I do not mind. You take as long as you wish. <laughs> and we turn and we walk again. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. First of all, now I know what everybody who ever fought Ted Lindsay in an NHL game felt like. And second of all, I got him riled up. It better be a good answer. <laughs> so we walk about 10 more feet and he stops again. And he looks at me and he says, I thought really hard, but I got to go with the rocket. Wow. Yeah. And I said, well, that makes sense. He said, his eyes were just wild, wild. Wow. He was the toughest. That's cool. Yeah. And then we turned and started walking again. And I was so scared. I'm not sure I asked another question, but at one point he got a little ahead of us and his wife looked over at me and she just made the face like, you dumbass, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) She's seen the movie a thousand times, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, and I kind of made this face and she giggled under her breath a little bit and they carried on. But that was my Ted Lindsay, don't ask me again, I heard you the first time moment, but I'll never forget the answer. And it was a good one, which I liked. Terrible Ted. Love that guy. All right. Story time's over. Time to turn out the lights, fluff up your pillow, and it's Q&A, Paul. It's Q&A. And just as a reminder to our listeners, uh, we got an amazing Q&A prize pack. Uh, compliments of our sponsors at Conquest Hockey and Summer Skates. Two great brands collide here, Steve. Uh, second only to one chocolate collided with peanut butter. Mm-hmm. Um, so how about this, listeners? If your question is selected for our Q&A segment, you'll receive a pair of Conquest Hockey-branded summer skate sandals and two skate lace koozies. Compliments of our great partners at Conquest Hockey and Summer Skates. Yep, Summer Skates and Conquest Hockey, absolutely delicious together. Paul, what's our question today? (laughs) I thought you were supposed to tee me up. (laughs) I was, I totally forgot. You know what? I'm not even going to take this out as an outtake. This is going to stay in... (laughs) This is not going to be an outtake. Paul, what's our question today? Our question comes from London, Ontario, the forest city from Scott Navarro. Also my hometown as well, too. So cheers, Scott. What are your thoughts on banter between play-by-play and color during a hockey telecast? Leave in the play-by-play guy until the color jumps in on the whistle? Or do you like the conversations during play? Mm. Thoughts? Yeah, that's a good question. If we're only talking about hockey, because I think it's different in football and baseball, maybe not so different in basketball. I think basketball is like hockey. I think there's only one determining factor, and that's what's the chemistry between your play-by-play guy and your color person? Mm -hmm. Are they both amenable to jumping in and talking with each other or is one of them or do do they both want a real structure while the play is on? So if I take Bob Cole and Harry Neal, for example, or Danny Gallivan and Dick Irvin, there was not a lot of back and forth between those guys while the play was on. First of all, Bob Cole wouldn't want to be talked to while the play was on. And I don't Mm -hmm. think Danny would either. And I don't think Dick would be interested in jumping in on Danny. But when the whistle went back in those days, there was a real structure to how you broadcast a game. But if you get commentators that do like to go back and forth, like let's say Gord Miller and Ray Ferraro on TSN, or one of the pairs that I really, really enjoyed, and they're not broadcasting together right now, is Paul Romanuk and Mike Johnston. Worked on that crew. Yeah, you did. That's right. I loved when Mm -hmm. they went back and forth because Paul was really good at saying to Johnny, hey, why would he do this? Or why would he do that? Or why would that happen? To me, that's the role of a play-by-play guy. Mm -hmm. Tee up the analyst for what he might want to talk about. I mean, you and I do it to a very small, infinitesimal degree in this podcast. But Mm -hmm. when you're on live television, that's a real jewel to have in your pocket. Because that's how I find out what Mike Johnson's personality is or what Ray Ferraro's personality is. Whereas if I can only jump in on the whistle and you know how it is today, Paul, they can cram five or six or seven replays in there. I've got no time to show you who I am. I'm just talking about this save and that play at the blue line and that pass. And there's no time for personality. 
And yep. I think you've got to get a really nice balance in there. And that's how you do it. You do it with a conversation and it sometimes it's during play and sometimes it's not in football and baseball. It's different. I think yep. that that conversation has to happen a lot more and does happen in baseball to the nth degree because the, the game was built for that. And back in the day on radio, when Red Barber or Ernie Harwell or any of those guys were doing radio, if they happen to have an analyst with them, even mm-hmm. even, even the movie yeah. Major League, right? You yeah. go back and forth, you've got that banter, that's key, right? Uh, and you can look at this to, uh, from two perspectives as well, Steve. This can be from, do you like it as, are you watching as a fan? Or in our case, are we watching it from inside the truck as well too? So for me, as a fan, I don't have a preference to whether it's a traditional play-by-play, you know, stops talking on the whistle, or if it's more conversational. I, I have my favorites. So I, I have my favorite guys. And I, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't matter what their style is, as long as I enjoy listening to them. And from a, a director's standpoint, for me, I'm listening to every word that both of them are saying, whether it's traditional pause on the whistle or if it's banter, because it's my job, if that whistle goes in a heartbeat, to get them the picture of what they're talking about. So to be honest, I don't, when I'm in the truck working, I'm, I'm just listening for names and for key things to shoot, not have I enjoyed, have I enjoyed the banter? Um, it's like, okay, he's talking about Tortorello. Okay, nope, now he's talking about Rod Brindamore. Nope, okay, now he's talking about Sebastian Ajo. Nope, now he's talking about, you know, Zach Rowensky. I, I have to follow, that's how I, that's how I watch it from the truck. But at home, I really don't have a preference. I, the only preference I have is, do I like listening to that, 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 that guy or that team? And unless they tee it up for you on talkback, where they hit the key straight down to the truck and say, I want to talk about torts on the whistle, you mm-hmm. have to listen to, like you said, just these key words. You know, yeah. they've said Brindamore four times in the last 20 seconds. My guess is they're going to talk about Rod Brindamore because we can't listen to every word that's being said. We're doing... No. It seems like 20 other things at that time. So you yeah. just listen for keywords and phrases or what they might want to talk about or names that they use. Those are the things that resonate with you in the heat of the game that you can use as crutches isn't the right word, but you can use as somewhere to go on the whistle that you know they'll want you to go, right? Yep, exactly. So, so Scott, I hope that answered your question. We did the best that we could from both angles. Uh, congratulations on your conquest hockey summer skates prize pack and uh, remember conquest hockey play to win use the promo code inside 15 for 15 percent off your next order check them out they've got amazing gear conquesthockey.co and conquest hockey and summer skates delicious together so that'll put a bow on episode 12 remember if you have not already done so hit the subscribe button on your favorite platform Don't forget to follow Inside the Truck on Twitter and Inside the Truck Podcast on Instagram to keep up to date with what's going on with the show. I'm Steve Lansky, grade five badass. He's Paul Hemming, grade eight class president. That's it for today. You keep listening in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You never know when the Carolina Hurricanes will be there again. (laughs) And we'll keep bringing you Inside the Truck.